Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Brent S., Michael N., at Ohio D1R1, and Paul M. Returning to the program today is Mr. Ron Thiessen. Ron is president and CEO of Northern Dynasty Minerals. The company is advancing the large-scale pebble copper gold project in southwest Alaska. Northern Dynasty is a portfolio holding at Smith Weekly Research. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol NAK and also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NDM. Mr. Thiessen, it's a pleasure to have you back. How are you, sir? I'm good, Andrew. Please call me Ron. <laughs> well, Ron, it's been a while, over two years, if I recall correctly. I'm amazed where the time flies here. And maybe the time doesn't look so fast for you on your side with what's happening. But nonetheless, lots to talk about. But maybe let's just kick things off here, Ron. Maybe just some opening remarks from you on this marketplace, you know, copper, gold price environment, et cetera, and then also the status of growth at Northern Dynasty. Well, it's it's uh, hard to find the right uh, adjectives other than, you know, stunning, wonderful, enjoyable. I'm very happy with, you know, the, the commodities uh, marketplace right now, obviously. I mean, if we look back, you know, a year and a bit ago, I think copper was trading, you know, keeping its nose barely above $2, and now we're above 4 So, what a wonderful turnaround. And I guess, you know, I'm not surprised on one hand, it's taken much longer than, than I thought, but then that's that's pretty typical, I guess, with the mining industry and the resource sector, that, that things do take generally much longer than you anticipate. But certainly, you know, where we are today, a huge amount of uncertainty combined with really um, production shortfalls, uh, especially in the copper concentrate markets and uh, and clean copper concentrate markets. And that's led to, you know, a combination of things. Number one, obviously, um, warehouses uh, with not a lot of copper inventory in them and uh, smelter groups. Um, and obviously, China is the largest smelter capacity in the world desperately seeking uh, copper concentrates and especially clean copper concentrates. So TCRCs, treatment charges and refining charges are, you know, I haven't seen them this low since 2004, which was the year we came out of nuclear winter from the late 1990s. Um, and I, I've probably seen some that are even, um, you know, unbelievable in that, you know, some trading groups are prepared to offer um, zero and zero uh, treatment refining charges just to be able to fill their book with concentrates because they know that that some smelters are going to pay for clean concentrates. And then because of the overall shortfall um, of you know availability of, of the raw material, um, the copper prices have accelerated. And, and I think a, a lot of that has to do with the big push by just about everyone, especially the political class, but you know about the green initiatives and, and the and the desire to uh, you know change 
in effect, our source, our primary source of power for certainly transportation, commuting, and the like from, you know, the, the carbon, oil, and gas-based um, products to electrons. And, and fundamentally, electrons only travel efficiently, both cost and and uh, impedance on copper wire. And so the amount of the amount of copper that goes into this new economy, you know, people are just you know starting to come to grips with it. I mean, your typical windmill has about five tons of copper in it. And when you look at these wind farms, um, I mean, there's a hundred windmills. You know, and so that's just in the armature. You then have to aggregate all that power. So you've got, you know, tens if not hundreds of kilometers of copper wire bringing those electrons to a a, um, a central distribution system. Typically, the high energy lines are are aluminum, but then when they step down for distribution into the urban centers or where they're going to be used, once again, a massive amount of copper is required. Every one of these EV charging stations has, you know, at least a couple hundred pounds of copper in it. So it, it truly is, you know, going to be a massive change. And then on the other hand, we haven't had a great deal of investment in new mining opportunities, uh, especially on the copper side. Um, you know, yes, um, obviously, uh, Robert Friedland's Kamoa has come on stream. Um, there's a, a couple like uh, Keaveco Anglo in Peru that's scheduled to come on stream. But those barely put a dent into what's happened in some of the really big mines around the world, like Escondida, you know, where um, it wasn't that long ago that they were mining at one and a quarter to one and a half percent copper, and now they're down to 0.8. So, you know, they process the same tonnage, but they produce half the amount of copper. And to try and, and, just stay level where they were a decade ago, they end up investing six to seven billion dollars in, in uh, expansion capacity. So there's been there's been all of this demand and, and we haven't seen the true numbers yet. We're just seeing the anticipation. And we've also seen a reduction uh, in production because of, of head grade depletion. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, the stars are lining for the copper miners. So I'm pretty pleased with all of that, obviously, and, and the other metals as well. In terms of uh, Northern Dynasty and the Pebble Project, I mean, we had up until, I can tell you the date, you know, July 25th of last year, a spectacular two and a half years under the NEPA process, uh, under the, uh, the uh, auspices of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, to get to our final EIS, and it's probably one of the most comprehensive and positive FEISs that I've ever read. Not that I've read hundreds of them, but you know, after seeing uh, the draft, I went looking for other ones that was in spring and read them, um, and and went through about a dozen. And the Pebble Project truly, the the FEIS was very conclusive about things like impacts on the on the fisheries the commercial fisheries on on the sustainability on the sustenance fishery on water quality issues on socioeconomic issues um i just sat there and said well there can't be anything come out of this but a positive decision yet when the final decision was made in, in november it was negative um i mean the one downside that we were had a lot of anxiety about is 
the fact that last step in that permitting process called the the mitigation process was falling during the election cycle, which was fundamentally August through the November election date. And you never want to be, you know, a big anything during an election cycle because there's a lot of moving parts in those elections. And you know, if you end up being a part, you know, somehow participating in, in, in some issues that have to be resolved, the give and take of the political system during elections, it's not pretty and the outcomes can be, you know, completely diametrically opposed to what reality says. And I believe that's what happened to Pebble at the end of the day. And uh, so, you know, in a nutshell, we got probably one of the greatest final environmental impact statements that you can imagine. We were saddled with an extremely onerous mitigation requirement, uh, which I believe we met. You know, that was, that was, it was so onerous that I, I would venture that I doubt that there could be another project developed in Alaska that could meet the kind of mitigation standards that were imposed on Pebble, yet I believe that, that we provided that. Still, we when, once we submitted our plan, it was within a few short days that they had rejected it. It's almost as if, you know, there'd been a foregone conclusion because of the dynamics of the election that this thing couldn't proceed at that time. Uh, so that's fundamentally where we ended up with a positive administrative record on the FEIS, uh, what I believe is a tremendous compensatory mitigation plan, but a negative rod. And, and the next step after that is to obviously appeal that decision. That was done. We read, filed our appeal in January. Um, about a week, 10 days ago, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the Alaska Division, submitted the final administrative record for the purposes of that administrative appeal. And now we'll have a review officer assigned to that case and go through a period of appeal. Technically, the regulations say 90 days. Well, it took them 90 days to put the record together, although it must have been together in the first place because they made a decision. But we think, given Hebel's stature and some of the controversy in the amount of detail, that it's going to take longer than that. I mean, sometimes these appeals can take a year, but I am hopeful that uh, that's not going to take that long because I think the uh, the record pretty much speaks for itself and, and it's in our interest and I believe it's in Alaska's interest to see a decision on this before a year. In fact, I'd like to see it before the end of this year. And how, how can that decision go? Well, I mean, fundamentally, um, they can uphold the negative decision on the rod and, and understand that the decision on the rod, which is the record of decision, um, is what the ROD stands for, has to be supported by the administrative record. So, I mean, that's why we've got this, you know, big issue is the FEIS was so definitive and so positive, yet it appears in their decision-making process, they totally ignored it. And they issued the denial before the permitting process was even complete, which is again, never seen that happen before so i think there is there's room for optimism um on the outcome so like i said the decision could be uh uphold the negative decision on the rod in which event 
uh, ourselves and I believe the state of Alaska and some of the native corps, village corps in the region would appeal that to a judicial proceeding as opposed to the administrative proceeding. We can't go judicial proceeding until the administrative uh, appeal has been finalized. Um, they could completely reverse the decision and make a positive decision, which would please me. But again, I, I, I think that's a bit remote just from the standpoint that, to tell you the truth, the permitting process had not been completed. Alaska's material had not been submitted. And, and again, how they can make a decision without Alaska being part of it is, you know, it's a complete, you know, uh, unknown to me because Alaska is probably the key player in the entire process. It's, it's state land. It's the state that owns these mineral rights. And yet they didn't bother to take into account anything Alaska had to say. So I don't think they can flip the rod around to make it absolutely positive. Uh, and then the third alternative would be to remand the record decision back to the division in Alaska and say, complete the permitting process and redo the decision in accordance with the administrative record. And then we'll see how, have to see how that comes out. But that, that's where we are today. Um, that said, you know, we're busy on, on doing a lot of things. We've got a small appeal program uh, scheduled for this summer. Um, we're doing a bunch of, of things that we would have done even with a positive rod. We're doing some metallurgical work, trying to fine tune a process. Our development plan had not contemplated a gold recovery plant, you know, a pyrite gold recovery plant because we undertook not to use cyanide. So we've taken this, this time to go test some alternative luxivians like thiosulfates and glycine and the like and uh we're seeing some promising results on some fronts there and um we're also tweaking some of the engineering working on on uh some water treatment alternatives and the like so we have by no means given up on this project i mean it's probably the preeminent polymetallic porphyry deposit in the world today and it's it's a huge asset for the state of Alaska, especially when you consider that you know people are trying to turn off the taps on oil and gas, and that's been the main state of Alaska for the last 40, 50 years. And turning that tap off will very much impact the state of Alaska revenues. I'm going to say that probably 80% of their their revenues come from the oil and gas side of the business, and they'll need something to re to replace those things. Not that that we would replace it all. But certainly there's royalties to receive, taxes to receive. Uh, we'll employ a lot of people. We'll spend close to half a billion dollars a year in state on, on uh, supplies and consumables. We'll have, you know, over a hundred million dollars in, in payroll. So all of that will probably benefit, you know, the GDP of Alaska by you know, something well over a billion dollars. Ron, it's a needle mover. Lots of stuff you cover here. I appreciate the overview on status and possible outcomes. The copper situation is interesting just from the standpoint that Northern Dynasty is a prime example of big projects around the world that are slow to advance. The permitting bottleneck is causing and will cause in the years to come significant issues as far as supply demand fundamentals. I think that's where we see the copper price continue to drive ahead. If you said that uh, Kamoa didn't make a dent in what we have, and you are more privy to the copper market than I am as far as information and time spent on, on actually you know, drilling down and getting all the nitty gritty details sorted out, 
in addition to that, things like Florence, which probably move forward here this year to Seco, that's not even a paint scratch it, on it this market. It's good stuff to see here and really good for what's about to come. Um, where do we go from here? You know, it's like dealing with late stage Rome as far as the jurisdiction and some of the thought processes, not Alaska, not include Alaska in what I said there, but, but certainly from a federal standpoint, it literally is to the point of dysfunction. It's not only in this particular agency, government-wide, if you will, it's challenging, but talk about your resolve for a moment. This is something that's important to point out. You guys Absolutely. have been I mean, going over this and, and dealing with this project for such a long period of time. You're not a spring chicken anymore. What is the resolve of Northern Dynasty, the resolve of HDI, the resolve of the partnership? Well, th that's the nature of the business. In the mining industry, you have to have a thick skin. You have to be determined. I mean, the reality is, you know, most people would say, well, I don't want a, a mine in my backyard, but I want everything the mine's got to give. And so, I mean, you don't see many mines anymore near urban centers and the like, and we go out and, and we do this. We know that we have to demonstrate that we can coexist with, with other industries, with other natural resources, which is why we put so much time and effort. I mean, we spent a billion dollars on this project to date, you know, and, and I, I'm going to say that our environmental baseline studies are, they're far more pervasive and far more detailed than any project that I'm aware of. And, and I think the mining industry is that way, you know. I mean, I look at the U.S. and, and there's five large um, mining projects, copper mining projects in the U.S. today. The five largest are all uh, under permitting issues. Pebble, Resolution, Rosemont, Twin Metals, and Polymet. You know, and it's not like the U.S. That, that, that they only need one or two of them. They need all five. You know, we need all five in North America. You think of, I mean, you know, when the U.S. makes about, manufactures about 15, 16 million cars a year, people by 2030, they want all those cars to be EVs. Well, at a minimum, every car is going to have 100 pounds of copper. I mean, a Tesla has 185 for a single axle drive. But at 100 pounds, and, and then you look at the other markets in the world, there's about 80 million vehicles a year made, manufactured. And the amount of copper that's just gonna go just in the EVs, and that's not the majority uh, place for copper, the power generation and power distribution is far larger than that. But our needs you know, are phenomenal. I was reading a report earlier this week from, from Jeffries. I mean, Goldman Sachs published about a month ago that they expected copper to hit $5 a pound um, next year. Uh, Jeffries figures it will hit $7 a pound by 2025. That's all supply and demand dealings. And, you know, A, we haven't had a great deal of investment in the mining industry because commodity prices post 2010, 2011, commodity prices, you know, fell. And so, that period didn't see any development. There hasn't been a great deal of development. Um, and and Kamoa, while it's a great mine, you know, it's it barely scratches the paint in terms of the overall demand. I mean, we we, we consume about 25 million pounds of copper a year. Um, that's a huge number, and it's going to grow 
by at least 30% in the next decade and at least 50% in the next two decades. So, you know, and all the, all the high-grade deposits are pretty much gone. I mean, we found them. The easy stuff is gone and, you know, we need tier one assets. We need Oya Tolgoys, we need pebbles, we need resolutions, um, you know, and I think the mining industry is is changed tremendously um, over the last 30 years. I mean, yes, we've got tailing storage facilities that are problematic and that are failing, but most of those are pretty old technology. And, and yes, we need to go back and, and ensure that they aren't failing in future, even if they are old technology. But, you know, upstream design, I mean, nobody's allowed to use that anymore, certainly in the developed world. Um, dry stack or a form of dry stack tailings come to us and, and we're embracing that. Um, we're embracing, you know, lower energy costs, trying to, to do more with less or sorting. We know that probably 80% of, of the metal is contained in about 30, 40% of the, the ore. And so if we can start sorting, you know, in the pit or at the face, I mean, you know, at Gibraltar, we're using shovels that, that actually do ore sorting in the shovel. They, they can tell whether how much ore in the grade in the shovel by refractory processes and whether that should be a, a shovel load that goes to the waste pile or go, goes to the uh, the mill, and and that way we reduce uh, communition, which is crushing and grinding costs, which is where all the energy goes in the mining sector is in your taking, you know, big rocks and making bug dust out of it so that you can get the metal out of it. So, you know, I'm, you know my partners and I at, at HDI, I mean, I, a lot of people ask me, well, after the naked rod, what what do you plan to do? And I said, well, you know, my shareholders will have me. I'm staying here. I'm just one of those those diehard kind of guys that this is just too good, too big to simply walk away from. And and nobody would nobody's going to walk away from Pebble anyways. I mean it's you know you can turn down one development uh, scenario doesn't mean that another development scenario. I mean one of the things that we're looking at right now is um, um, how to approach an underground mine. I mean we all we always said uh, for the last two and a half even going beyond that is that this the initial phase of this mine would be open pit because the ore body outcrops the the waste to ore ratio for the first 20 years is 0.1 to 1. Um, it makes it very inexpensive and also low energy consumption because you're not having to move two tons of waste for one ton of ore which is the average um, but we always said that that you know in subsequent decades we could see a real opportunity to chase some much higher grade ore at depth, you know, down a thousand, two thousand feet. Uh, not dissimilar to the way that Oya Tolgo is taking uh, taking that approach. And so we're doing some work on that right now and, and hope to have some news out, you know, summer or fall about what this project could look like in, in perhaps an underground scenario or a hybrid scenario where you're, you're taking ore from both the open pit and the underground to feed the mill. And the other thing about the underground is then you're not pushing overburden around waste rock. You're not stripping it and, and, and piling it up in the valleys. Um, I mean, there is subsidence, but 
you're pulling just pure ore out of the underground and not dealing with waste rock. So, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of ideas we've got. There's so many variables in mining and it truly is changing quite dramatically. Um, you know, when I look at what the Gibraltar mill looked like when we bought the mine, which was a mill that had been built in the early 1970s, and, and what we did to that mill, you know, over a six year period from 2006 to 2012, and how we changed it. I mean, it's phenomenal. We went from a, a hundred float cells to nine large volume autocompu cells. And dare I say that if we were doing it today, we could probably get by with three large volume autocompu cells at, uh, at Gibraltar. So lots to do, and we're here for the long haul. Ron, I appreciate that. You have options, whether it's a potential, you know, lawsuit route on the outcome that uh, would be expected one way or the other. And then, of course, you have a new application route, which is what you suggested here as far as different mining methods and so forth. So it continues. And I think that's the important part here. But, you know, one of the things that has been pointed out from some skeptics, not on the environmental side, Ron, but other skeptics out there, basically other investor groups who believe the project is uneconomic and believe the deposit will never see the light of day for one factor or another. You know, maybe some of these investors have been slapped by volatility over the years. Perhaps some of them never took profits during the rise during the last cycle, 2011. What do you say to investors about the economics here? Because it's striking distance that copper is $5 a pound. And in my view, their estimates are conservative. Some of the ones you mentioned, Goldman Sachs, Jeffries, I think it goes higher on copper. And then you have gold. There's no doubt in my mind that gold will be a 2,000 an ounce moving forward. What do you say about economics? Because I'll tell you what, economics have changed substantially here. Economics usually looks after themselves. I, you know, people were during the the permitting process. People say, well, yeah, is this thing economic? And, and our detractors are saying, you know, why are you, why are you bothering to 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 evaluate this project for a permit? You know, it's uneconomic, and and we we did provide material to to the Army Corps of Engineers to demonstrate its economics and. You know, even for them to make a decision on the transportation corridor required a certain amount of economic background because it, it that they, the method that they use is called LEDPA, the least environmentally damaging practicable alternative. And practicable means economic. So they did, they did look at that in a gross scale. But I usually tell people, listen, you know, without a permit, it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter what the economics are because you can't build anything. Economics are important the day you can make a decision. And so the most important thing is, is getting a permit and what can you build? Because what, what and how you build determines, you know, to a large extent, the CapEx, which is the biggest upfront cost in determining the economics. Um, I mean, this project, you know, I go back to the 2011 PEA, we did a, a, a huge PEA, over 600 pages, um in 2011 and a year ago the economics even throughout that pea process 20 beginning of 2018 through to uh, july of last year the metal prices were all better than what we'd used in our 2011 pea and the capex i mean when i looked at the 2011 pea uh hot roll steel was was uh Twelve hundred dollars a ton. Well, during most of that period, hot roll steel was four hundred fifty bucks a ton. Uh, in 2011, Brent was, 
I can't remember, $125 a barrel. Through that period, Brent probably averaged about $45 a, period, a barrel. So to me, I said, you know, we're not going to publish a PEA on the economics until we get some definitive outcomes on the rod. And uh, because we've got quite a few alternatives uh, in, in that uh, permitting process that we need to deal with. Um, and, 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 you know, you know that, that the mining industry and commodities are a cyclical business. And, you know, do you pick the numbers at the bottom of the market? Do you pick the numbers at the top of the market? No, you tend to pick, you know, something that's, that's in between that you think is sustainable long-term. And, and Pebble has had some, has some very unique features. Like I said, Pebble West, the waste to ore ratio is 0.1 to 1. So almost everything you mine goes to the mill. Well, if it costs a buck a ton to, to mine a, a ton of rock, the average copper porphyry mine you have to mine three tons to get one ton of ore, two tons of waste and one ton of ore. So you get $3 for the ore that's delivered to the mill. Well, in Pebble's case, it's only $1 because there's no waste rock. So, you know, what's the worldwide average? I mean, in, I shouldn't say worldwide, what's the average cost in North America of open pit mining uh, and processing at a porphyry? It's probably something in the order of, of you know, nine to, to uh, $12 a ton. I mean, at Tosico at Gibraltar mine, it's it's about $8 US a ton. Well, we just saved $2. I mean, Tosico's waste to our ratio is two to one. Uh, most of the porphyries in, in Arizona are at least two to one. So we just saved 20% because of the lower mining costs. It's a, got a very clean concentrate. People are going to pay a premium for that. And it's a polymetallic. I mean, when you looked at the PEA from 2011, we actually produced copper net of byproducts at minus 11 cents a pound. And oh, by the way, we produced half a billion pounds of it a year. So even copper at two bucks, as long as gold was 10.50, the copper was eff effectively free, paid for by the gold. And now it's even better. I mean, when we look at, at the metal prices today, we're doing some of this work. Uh, we may come out with, uh, with some economics this year because you know, we the rod has been put behind us. We always said once the rod has been, the decision on the rod has been, then then we'll take a look at economics. We're, we'll be prepared to to discuss that in more detail. And I think we're we're getting there, even with the negative rod. Um, I want to ensure that that the politicians. I know the governor of Alaska, and I I know the that the executive branch in Alaska. They know the value of this deposit and what it's worth. But we may need to make sure that you know. Washington DC knows what the value of this deposit is and uh, why it needs to go into production. I mean, the, the unfortunate thing is that the world seems to have come into the grips of anti the anti-development crowd. I mean, the most ridiculous proposition I'm hearing these days is that um, out of NRDC and Earthworks and, and the like is that we don't need any mines. We can, we can recycle copper and it'll provide 100% of our needs. Well, we recycle roughly 60 to 70% of copper. In fact, two thirds of all the copper that's ever been produced is still in the system because of recycling and, and reusing. And so we, we recycle 60 to 70%. So we recycle about 8 million tons out of 25 million tons a year. So I, I don't know where they're, <laughs> you know, if, 
you improve your recycling from 60, 70% to let's say 100%, okay, then you're gonna go up to uh, maybe 11 or 12 million tons. That still leaves you 50% short. I don't know where you're gonna get that copper from. It's just, it's ludicrous. You're, you know, if we want this, this uh, carbon-free energy, copper becomes the most important commodity. It's more important than, you know, the battery commodities because before the electrons get to the battery, they have to be produced and they have to be transported and distributed. Copper is the most critical, I believe, element in this whole green initiative to transform society into, into electrons. I mean, there, there are thousands of kilometers, miles, of copper wire in large apartment buildings and, and office complexes. You think of how much, how many electrical components you use compared to the 50s and 60s and 70s. I mean, I remember, you know, houses that were built in, you know, pre-1980 typically had two electrical outlets per room. Well, now you have at least four and generally six. The amperage, you know, pre-1980, mid 80s certainly pre-1980 you had 100 amps then some of the larger houses started to get into 200 amps i'm now seeing houses being built with 400 amps we need that much electricity for everything that we do vancouver has brought in a bylaw that i believe after 2023 no buildings are allowed to be heated by natural gas it's got to be 100 percent electricity I mean, I would say that probably 80% of, the, of the, the buildings out there in Vancouver and that are under construction use natural gas for heating. Well, after 2023, you can't use natural gas anymore. And, and that's the way most development's going. So when I say that the cars are the small part, just think if every condo building gets built and it, it has to be heated or cooled, with electricity as opposed to natural gas. It's just unbelievable the numbers that we're gonna need in terms of copper production. And there's no way that recycling gets there. I mean, we will still recycle all of that that we can, but there just, there isn't enough in the system yet. And when does it become a closed circuit and sustainable purely because of, of recycling? You know, probably not for another 50 years or more. Oh, absolutely at the very minimum these folks who are quoting these numbers and these are the same people who won't throw away their iphone rod so that's <laughs> yeah, not going to all drive uh, Teslas and live in santa monica and i mean yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a business yeah. you know it's it is. Every, every every document they push out every email they push out every ad they push out it has a button it says click to donate here exactly it's all electrified there's a lot of copper that's going into this and to solve Vancouver's problem, you could use nuclear power for district heating and also solve your problem. A lot of problems. I just read a great book. It's, it's called uh, the plague cycle. Uh, you know, you mentioned the end of Roman times. I mean, that, that was actually brought down by the, the, the plague of Justinian. But what I found very interesting is, you know, these days, you know, people are, are so, um, anti-development it's almost like you know we want to we want to get rid of the industrial revolution we we want to do away with the last three four hundred years of, of of history um because we're not happy with 
the outcome. Instead of looking forward and saying, okay, where can we take it from here and move forward and do better? Um, let's cancel what has transpired. And so they're losing sight of what all of this development has done for the world. I mean, the average age life expectancy for a person living in Victorian England was about 31 years. And, and it really only started to change substantially after World War I. You know, the Industrial Revolution has been great for the world. I mean, th there's more people, healthier people, more middle-class people in the world than there's ever been before. Um, but if you're going to cancel all of industrial development, we're going to go backwards. Ron, it's a simple matter of you want some sanity to return. Yes. Let's take away clean water. Let's take away your sanitation. Let's take away your garbage pickup. Let's go ahead and take the roof off your head. Let's go ahead and cause economic troubles to where you can't support anything. And then let's throw in a few blood in the street moments. And there you go. All of a sudden, your thinking's changed. And now it's about clean water. It's about having stability. No more wars in the streets. It's yeah, about it's... putting the roof over your head. It's about now making a system where I can actually make money and thrive and, and actually build something for myself and for my family, family first. So it, to me, this is really, this is one stage of a cycle and uh, we're living in it. Maybe we don't see it in our lifetime, maybe we do. But certainly it's, it's one of those types of setups here that I think is taking place. You know, we're human beings, man. We have sex, we crap, we eat our food. We do these things just like people before we us did. We're, we're basic creatures. It, it's pretty interesting there. Switch gears here for a moment, Ron. Let's talk about just the, the capital structure here of the company. Can you just share with us where we are on shares out here, cash, and how far will the current cash carry the company? So, I mean, the good thing, I guess the, the, the one good thing in all of this is that, you know, the administrative appeal doesn't cost you a whole lot of money here that you know and most of the work has been completed physical work uh at the site obviously you know a million feet of hq core drilling that hasn't been done the massive amounts of, of metallurgical uh test work has been done we're doing fine tuning on you know gold speciation and 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 the types of luxivians that we can use for recovery of peritic gold so that that the numbers are are pretty low you know um we've got you know, at least 30 million US, uh, I think coming out of mid-year this year, um, I would expect that we'll end the year with at least half or more of that uh, in the treasury. And, uh, you know, we still got lots of interest in, you know, in people making investments either in the asset or in the company. And so um, from that standpoint, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, there's, there's about, 500 million shares fully diluted out there probably about somewhere between 30 and 40 million of them are out of the money will they happen hard to say i mean if we if we get a either a positive decision out of the out of the uh, rod appeal or even a remand decision then you know maybe a bunch of those do get done before the year end but there's about a half billion shares outstanding fully diluted um, from that standpoint, I feel I feel okay, and you know that we've got funding available to us, and we've got uh, other people that are are interested in doing it, and we don't have a big burn rate coming up. I mean, although you know probably the largest part is lawyers, and 
nobody likes to pay lawyers. At least I tell our lawyers that. Um, at least, you know, we're, we're not spending big money on uh, doing exploration or, or, or engineering work at this point in time. Most of that, most of that is done. It's fine tuning work. There's a, a bit of a care and a maintenance project. I'm going to say we're probably going to spend something like a million dollars at site this year. When I switch gears here yet again, and, and I'm kind of disorganized here in some of my thought processes here, but uh, David Lowe, a good man, a tremendous contributor to the natural resource business, specifically in pore-free deposits, very high regard for the pebble deposit. How was the relationship with David, and uh, what was his reasoning for really giving this deposit such high marks? Well, you know, uh, David uh, was a giant in the industry. I mean, it wasn't just Escondida, it was many more projects, and, and he advised on a lot of projects. It's it's interesting that uh, David was a mining engineer, yet um, in many senses, he was a discoverer. Not He wasn't a geologist, he was a mining engineer. And, and what he liked to say is that, you know, he, in many cases, knew how to, how to turn a accumulation of mineralization into a mine. And that was one of the keys. Um, you know, I met Lowell, David Lowell, the first time, I believe it was 1986 in Santiago, Chile. And, um, you know, had some other dealings with him through the years, but I had uh, um, the great pleasure of having dinner with him um, in San Francisco. And I think that was the, like, October, November, um, 2016 or 2017, I think it was 2016. And, and um, you know, he was invested in Pebble. Um, he was a, a good acquaintance of uh, Marin Katusa and Doug Casey and the like. And uh, we were all having dinner and, and he said, you know, Ron, I'd really like to get up to Pebble. And uh, I said, no problem, David, I'd love to have you. You know, next time I'm going up, um, there's no question. I'll call you and, and we'll go up to Pebble. So that's like October, November. In January, I get a call and he goes, you know, it's been three months. Um, haven't you been up there yet? And I said, well, it's dead winter and there's like three hours of daylight. Um, no. And he said, well, when, it, when are you going to go up? I said, well, I'm thinking May, June. Uh, and he goes, that's all. That, that could be a long. That could be a uh, a long time away. I said, it's not that long. He said, well, for me, it could be a lifetime. I mean, because he was 91 or 92. And uh, as it turned out, um, you know, we went up in June, and um, you know, he had in his mind uh, something very particular. He said, on these very large porphyries, um, you you need to you need to assess what are called geological domains. And, and the mistake that a lot of mining engineers make is they try and build a mill, a metallurgical process that will handle all the different geological domains. And yet we know that the way these deposits are formed, the mineralogy is different in each one of those domains because the mineralogy was created at different times, maybe a million years apart. And so it's extremely difficult. And so he, he came up there with a view to spending a couple of days assessing what we had done with respect to geological domains and how we treated treated it mineralogically and metallurgically. Like, were we trying to build a mill that was going to last 100 or 200 years, or were we focused on 
this is what Pebble West looks like mineralogically, um, and, and this is what we need to build a mill for, for that 20-year period. And the next 20-year period, we could get different ore, and so we, we're going to have to build a different mill or, or change things. And, you know, that's, again, that's the other great thing about Pebble is it, it has these alternatives, not just in mining, but also uh, metal department. Some areas are much richer in gold, and some areas, uh, you know, have softer rock. And so, you know, you build a 180,000 ton a day uh, processing plant, but you can pump 250,000 tons a day because the work index is low. And actually, he came away um, from that two days later. And, you know, one of the greatest compliments is that he told, you know, Bob Dickinson, myself, Steve Hodgson, Doug Casey, and, and Marin, he said, you know, when it comes to the, the thing that's nearest and dearest to my heart, how to make a mine, out of an accumulation of metal by by assessing geological domains and, and the metallurgical processes, he said, I really don't have anything to add, it's covered. That was just, you know, uh, a real sense of, of accomplishment when, when he told us that. The, there's two sad things about David. One is that he passed away last March. And two, that I was trying to get him to Florence because he had been one of the original you know, people that had worked on the in situ back in the 1980s concept and had some affiliation with Florence and some of the other um, buried oxide deposits. And, and he wanted to see um, what we were doing and how we were going about it. But, you know, I, I called him in uh, 2019 on a couple of occasions, but he physically wasn't doing that well. I mean, mentally he was okay. But he'd uh, he'd hurt his back on one occasion and and uh, been in a wheelchair and another occasion he just his legs weren't working well so we never got him to Florence but you know I had great admiration for him in fact one of my good friends a guy named Ken Pickering who it's a small world Ken graduated from UVC a mining engineer same year um, as Bob Dickinson and Dave Copeland and they kind of knew each other at University Bob in geology Dave Copeland in geological engineering. And Ken went on to be the uh, GM at Island Copper, owned by Utah Mines. And Utah um, was who uh, David Lowell worked for in the 1980s, and sorry, 70s and 80s, and was the discoverer of Escondida. And Ken was sent in 1986 or 87 um, to Anafagasto to build Escondida. And uh, David was there uh, at that time. Ken ended up being the... Uh, the CEO of Minera Escondida for 20 years and uh, went through, you know, building a mine that had a 35,000 ton a day concentrator with uh, 100 ton trucks and being told that that should last for at least, should look after everything because it had to last at least 20 years. And over that 20 year period, he took that from 35,000 tons a day to I think 185,000 tons a day concentrating capacity in 300 ton trucks. But <laughs> So they knew each other extremely well uh, from those days. So, um, you know, again, uh, sad day when, when David passed, but he, he had a great life. Um, I think he was about 94 when he passed away. I do know that the Lowell estate is still on the share registry. He wrote some great letters of support for us during the public commentary period. That should count for a lot. Certainly a good man and certainly a guy that we followed and continue to follow with some of our investments uh, in the sector. 
his legacy continues on here and will do so for a long time. I forgot to mention that Ken Pickering now sits on the board of Northern Dynasty Entity. Yep, and two companies that we're certainly familiar with here. Well, Ron, ESG has become a big thing. And I like to say this, and I know our audience listening has, has heard me say this multiple times, sound like a broken record, but you know, ESG is is really the people that ask this question, most of them anyway, don't understand the blood, sweat, tears, and stress that go into ESG. And I know before this, of course, good management teams have always practiced CSR and, and on back before that, and you're no stranger to these types of acronyms. Um, but ESG seems to be getting traction here, at least uh, at least for what I see is probably something that will become a little bit more permanent and measured. But, you know, talk about your guys' efforts here. You guys have put out an ESG report. You guys are continuing to work at the local community level to support local community to get those Native Corp lands on board with you. What specific work is being done on that front to ensure community alignment? Let me start with the very first thing that happened at Pebble. After we signed the option with, with Kaminko, uh, the first team of people we sent in was led by a guy named Bruce Jenkins. And Bruce Jenkins' uh, background is um, he is a uh, hydrological engineer and fisheries biologist. And, and Bruce um, and his team went out and visited all of the villages on the lake and a couple of, uh, of the towns that were on the coast with a view of, of getting people's assessment, you know, and, and most people out there didn't know much about mining, but without question, the number one topic was fish, you know, and, and it was, fish had been the mainstay of their lives, whether it was sustenance fishing for the, the interior communities on the lake, or whether it was the commercial fishery in the, in the bay. And, and, you know, Bruce was, was the first CEO of, Pebble, Alaska, um, as not as a mining engineer, not as a geologist, and and Bruce's mandate was to ensure that everything we did, the environment, and the communities got as much attention as the geology, the metallurgy, you know, and and the engineering, and and he he still talks about that, about how you know this project focused not just on geology and engineering and, and metals and, and the economics, but took into account all of these other things. And, you know, and Bruce was the original guy who came up with ho hosting um, community meetings on a pretty regular basis and having information employees in each village that if people had questions, they wanted something, they could ask somebody local, somebody that they could talk to, and that person could go find out the information. So there's been an outreach, I mean, basically since day one. And in terms of the, the villages on the lake, I'm not saying that 100% of people support us, far from it. Not In some cases, some, some villages don't even, that has never stopped us from engaging with those villages and talking to them. Um, we had a, uh, when Anglo was there, we had a pretty substantial, um, fund that that we put together for community projects uh for scholarships education but also just community projects and it didn't matter whether you were for or against the project or 
whatever it was, if it was a worthwhile community project, um, you know, it got funded. And and we ensured that we didn't, we being Angle and Northern Dynasty, we weren't the majority on the evaluation board for those projects. So we have continued the, you know, we've given work to all of these. We've helped them set up contracting companies. The village of Iliamna, we helped them. They, they'd never run a room and board operation before. So we helped them acquire a bunch of properties in the village of Iliamna, helped them fix them up, showed them how to run a catering operation. We brought, you know, a catering company in. So the objective here is that you work with them, you know, and, and the first year you run it, but by the second year, they have to be able to run it. And we, we uh, contracted with uh, non-Dalton to look after uh, our airlift or helicopter services and brought in a helicopter company and said, you know, we want you to work with these people and train people around helicopters, helicopter servicing, ground works and all of this. In fact, one of the, the greatest stories up there is that some young guy you know, 16 years old, you know, started off working just as a ground guy, um, slinging, what's called slinging for helicopter loads. Uh, next thing he, uh, he ended up uh, as a driller's helper. He made enough money that he went back and got himself a helicopter license. And he's probably the best helicopter operator out there, you know, and, and he started with us back in 2005. Um, once we got to the point where we started seriously considering permitting, you know, in 2000, 15, 16, we started working with the villages on the lakes to get them invested in the project so that it's it was not, not just giving you contracts. How can we utilize the things that you've got to help you earn money? And, and we entered into what are called right-of-way contracts with most of these villages where we pay we, we were paying them an upfront fee, not, not huge, you know, $250,000 a year, um, for the option to have this right away and then the idea was once the mine makes its final decision to go into production then you will get a toll fee for every ton of of ore that cross or to every ton of concentrate that crosses your property you're going to get a fee in addition there's a, a royalty that each one of these villages entered into embedded in those right-of-way contracts um, we trained a lot of people we were the we were the for probably 10 years, we were the largest employer through these joint ventures with the village corporations in the region. So, um, you know, we we know that that people in that area need to see and get something out of a project like this because otherwise, if there's nothing in it for me, why would I want it? You know, they have to see opportunity. Otherwise, all they see is downside. And that's one of the challenges that, you know, I, I respect the coastal villages, um, which are over 100 miles away from the, the Pebble Project. And there, there are no roads. There's nothing. There's, you know, the only way they can get into Pebble is, is air commuting. Um, and, and they have a situation where we're not going to go across their land. You know, some of them may be able to come and work. You know, we send planes out to pick people up. Uh, but what is in it for me in terms of the development of that project and maybe it's only risk you know and they go well what what is if the if if i can't get any any you know right away contracts or big service contracts out of them then um 
how do we do this? So that, that's why we developed that um, Pebble Royalty structure and said that people that want to sign up for this, again, you don't have to be, you don't have to tell us that you're in favor of the project. You don't have to say anything and, and we'll maintain confidentiality, but at least you'll get, and we, we modeled it on the permanent fund dividend so that there's a uh, an NPI that's put together, aggregated into a trust and it distributes money. And our objective was to distribute somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,000 per man, woman and child for the population in Western Alaska. Now, you know, um, it's not a lot of money in and of itself, $1,000 man, woman, child, but that's what the, the permanent fund dividend pays out to them. And, uh, and that happens in many families to be the largest source of cash for some house, households, you know, where there's two parents and four or five kids, that's the largest source of cash. And there's about, you know, um, 7,000, 7,500 people that live in Western Alaska uh, in, in totality probably 80, 85% of them live in those coastal villages. So that's one of the things that we've put out there. It remains in place and, and we're hoping that, you know, over time, everybody signs up for it because I'd like nothing better than to pay out that money to, to those families every year. With Pebbles development, does it seem like you and this opportunity is offering people of that local region? I'm not talking about places that are 100 miles away or 500 miles away in Alaska talking about local communities, for those people, those youth, those middle-aged folks, even older folks, to step out and say, these are the opportunities that Pebble offers, whether it's medical, whether it's food, whether it's driving truck, transportation, labor, all of these things. It's essentially a type of environment that a lot of people in the, in the continental US have got to appreciate throughout their lives. That is this opportunity. Because otherwise, yeah. if this wasn't here, it's an area of outmigration. I mean, uh, I can tell you we've we've run what we call elders seminars where we bring, you know, uh, 50, 60 elders into uh, into Anchorage and, and have other people come like, you know, we had a group of people from Nanacorp, which is the Red Dog Mine. Um, you know, and they went through all of the anxiety of building the Red Dog Mine, the largest zinc mine in the world above the Arctic Circle. Um, and with native villages, you know, nearby uh, in the 1990s. And we had some of those people come down and talk to the elders from this area and, you know, explain to them, you know, what the changes were. And, and there were some big, big changes. The one I like the best is the lady that walks over to the edge of the room and she flicks the light switch on and off. And, and somebody says to her, well, you know, it brought electricity. She said, yes, it brought electricity. But she said, I'm really talking about my child's education, my children's education, because prior to Red Dog um, and above the Arctic Circle, during the school year, it's almost always nighttime. And so my children did homework by coal oil lamp. And if you know, if you've ever tried to do anything by coal oil lamp, like reading a book or anything, it's very challenging. And so when Red Dog came, we had lights, we had a room full of light and, and my kids, their schoolwork improved. Everything improved about it. It wasn't just, you know, the electricity. It was the knock-on of the electricity that was, that was uh, the big benefit in her view. And even the governor of Alaska, his three daughters all worked at Red Dog. He's married to a Nana Inuit lady, and he lived up there. And his three daughters all worked at 
Red Dog, and that's how they paid for their university education. And in the region we're in, in Western Alaska, there's a real out-migration, and, and the elders realize, and the parents realize, that if there's not something to keep their kids there, they're gonna go elsewhere. Even if they go elsewhere to go to school and stuff, if there's a real opportunity back in the area, then they will come back. And you know, it's it's a nice area. It'd be a nice area to live in. I mean, you'd want to go to Hawaii or the southern U.S. for a holiday in, in the middle of winter to take a break from from the darkness. But um, you know, it's and the mine sites. There's there's no villages close enough to the mindset that we have to move anybody. The closest village is 19 miles away. And even at that, Andrew, there's not a lot of people that live, you know, I'm going to say within 500 square miles of the property. We need most of the working area people uh, in the entire area. I mean, if you think about 7,000 people, if a third of them are working age, which would be logical, um, then uh, you're talking about 2,000 people. We need, we need you know, 1,000, 1,200 people working at the mine site. We probably need that many people working in service sector jobs, on infrastructure, on trucking, shipping, ferry operation, and, and, and catering, and all the rest of the stuff. I think almost everybody in the area. And when you look at the commercial fishery, um, there's hardly anybody employed in the processing end of the business. Yes, there are people that work on boats, it's an industry that lasts two, maybe three months a year. But something like 98% of the people that work in the process plants are not Alaskans. In fact, they're not even Americans. They're um, <laughs> immigrant labor that comes in under a, a cultural exchange visa to work there. Um, you know, and the governor has pointed out that many times. So we've, you know, this whole time we've tried to lift up young people. Um, give as many jobs as we can we we continue to give you know scholarships and, and the like to to people and we know that uh it's important um that we ensure that when this thing goes ahead there's going to have to be a hospital built in Ileana, new haven i mean right now i think there's five there's five villages on the lake and there's there's one uh medical clinic and, and there's no doctor in the clinic. There's a, a nurse and a, and a nurse's aide. You know, we will do much more than that. Um, we'll improve the schools that are there. I mean, New Haven has a school. So the biggest, the biggest village on the lake has got 200 people in it. The closest village to Pebble is Iliamna, and it's probably about 75, 85 people in the wintertime and maybe 120 people in the summertime. And, yeah. Like I said, you, you you talk to the people that have worked at Pebble and and it's really, um, it's heartwarming. I mean, uh, Jimmy, the driver, he kept on saying, you know, just take me to Anchorage and put me on TV. I'll tell them that I've never had a job in my entire life. My entire life I've, you know, gotten money from here and there, but I've never really had a full-time job and you guys gave me a full-time job. It feels so good, you know. Um, some of the other people, you know, once the expiration got got shut down and stuff, um, they just they were they wanted full time work and they ended up having to go up to the North Slope. And while we kind of indoctrinated them to full time work, which was great and they enjoyed that, they would have rather had it in Iliamna and nearby where you know they could go home every night. That's you know fundamentally the plan. I mean we 
did everything with helicopters. Environmentally, you can go up a pebble and you look at, out on the valley, this 25 square mile valley, and you look for a drill site, you can't see it. There's no roads, there's, there's, it is, it is still pristine even though we did a million feet of HQ diamond core drilling at that site. Um, you know, we didn't build any, any access roads because we said we don't want people going into this area. Um, you know, if you build access roads, things, what ends up happening is you get ATVs and all kinds of stuff going in and, you know, um, and people are not happy about that. So environmentally, we, we, um, really did a great job on, on that front. Everything was helicopter assist, helicopter lift. Uh, to the extent we'd employ people locally, we absolutely did that. Same with employing Alaskans first. Something that, you know, I really learned from Russ Hallbauer at Gibraltar is, you know, the Gibraltar mine, uh, if there's two candidates um, and the ones living in Williams Lake, that's who gets it. Or if they really need the other guy who doesn't, they'll do everything they can to encourage him to move to Williams Lake because they want their employees to be invested in the community and we're the same way with with alaska and alaskans ron it's funny because it seems that at least from my perspective that on the fishing side there's a lot of import folks whether it's from continental us other countries etc that participate in the fishing industry in alaska not native alaskans yeah that's just a simple perspective i don't even have any research to back that up but that's what i think is correct i know it is there exactly and, and you guys of course have been fought on this issue and you guys obviously have done some homework and know and on top of that you're unlocking a local community you're unlocking supply chain efficiency you're unlocking infrastructure whether it's baseload power nat gas plant etc roads supply chains to reduce the price of gas to reduce the price of milk pizza whatever it may be ron and you're also unlocking that community potential and that's the point because right now you don't have that you don't have the educational opportunities with this project you're able to go in and not only suggest things for the community but you're also able to listen to the community basically ask them what can you do to also improve it's a collaboration and that's the point that needs to be put across here is that there's so many people who have an armchair vote from another place in the United States that think, this is my favorite fishing hole, Ron. This is my favorite ATV location, Ron. I've seen the photos, I've seen the site. It's none of that. No, when Don Jr. posted his social media site and, and, and his pictures and said, we can't afford a mine to destroy this. He was at a location that was over a hundred miles away from Pebble. And he was treating it as if all the fish returned to exactly the same spot, and that's where Pebble was. There's eight different watersheds. In, in our watershed alone, there's over 6,000 creeks, streams, and rivers, and Pebble's on three streams that you know don't flow in the valley, except at Freshet in May, June, and maybe if there's enough rain and fall. There's hardly any fish that return. In fact, I, the number is four one hundredths of one percent of the returning fish return to the Cocktooley watershed itself is about two hundred thousand acres. 
it's ridiculous. I mean, the picture that people paint, Western Alaska is the size of, you know, Oklahoma or Ohio. There's 7,500 people live there and we're going to occupy one valley that's 25 square miles. And we're going to generate billions of dollars of GDP and value. And, and you know what? And it's not, it's not either fishing or mining. It's fishing and mining. I mean, I have a personal history at Bristol Bay, Alaska, going back to the 1970s. I won't get into it all, but I know that fishery pretty well. And I know that that's a great fish. It's the number one sushi salmon, sockeye, but almost 90% of the product goes into a can and never makes it to the sushi auction the, at, the, at the market in, in Tokyo. Yeah. And that's because the energy cost is 60 to 80 cents a kilowatt hour out there. If we bring them cheap energy, in fact, I, you know, I, I know the, the second, third largest fish producer out there that owns that. And you know, I talked to him, I said, you know, if we brought you eight to 10 cents kilowatt hour, couldn't you flash freeze that sockeye salmon? You could process it all in Dillingham or King Salmon or Knack Knack. You could have sides that are flash frozen, fillets that are flash frozen, and they could be shipped to the Skiji market in Tokyo and sold at 15 bucks a pound for sushi instead of putting the can. I mean, their, their, their capacity to process fish is also limited because it's so expensive to process those fish there. And because the Canada-US treaty doesn't allow them to technically take excess fish into Canada anymore, a lot of fish gets dumped because you know the boats come in, they're laden, and the processing plant says, I can only process this many fish in, in the next 24 hours. The rest of you guys got to go find a different process plant or take your load and dump it. And that happens Robin, all the time. They don't understand. It's not, and by the way, if you can, send me some sockeye. I'm on farmed fish here, so please, please <laughs> ship me some. I'll reimburse you for the shipping cost. But look, they don't fully understand here. This is not about, the fish is being used as an excuse. In my view, the fish is an excuse because when you look at the data, when you look at the science, when you look at the statistics, this project is located in a location. It's literally like saying, I am not going to let this proceed and I'm going to forfeit the economic benefits because this project is of scale that it will benefit local community first, state of Alaska, then the United States. And then, of course, it'll go beyond yes. the United States into the world. The point being that I am going to take a pass on this project. You know, Donlin's fine, Red Dog, fine. You know, it's all good. But this project, no. And because of that, I'm going to basically wager that this project is at risk, the same as taking a risk of nuclear power and having some kind of reactor accident. I'm going to take that same standard and I'm going to apply it to Pebble and I'm going to say, no, no, the risks are just outweigh the reward here. I'm not going to let that happen, which is silly to me. Interesting so, that you, you say that. I mean, the conclusion in the FEIS by ACOM, one of the largest, most preeminent engineering companies, especially environmental engineering in the United States, who were the, the engineer of record for the Army Corps of Engineers and the Army Corps of Engineers, their conclusion on our taming storage facility, and it, it is a unique concept that we have there. And, you know, there, we, we put a lot more money into that taming structure than people normally would. I would say it's at least 20, 25% higher cost to us, CapEx wise. 
but their comment in the FEIS was, we cannot conceive of an event or a series of events, including human error, which would lead to a catastrophic tailings failure. So they never did model what we'd call a catastrophic failure where 100% of the tailings is lost. They modeled a modest failure, I think 20% or 25%, which you know isn't small, but it because the, the tailings facility faces a large plane, it doesn't go out in a tidal wave uh, downstream into, into Bristol Bay. It dissipates within uh, a few miles onto this large flat area. I mean, what, you know, we're not in an area of Alaska that looks like your concept of Alaska. It's very flat where Pebble is because 10, 12,000 years ago, glacial ice came and basically took all the mountains away. And so the risk you talk about there is, I won't say the zero risk, but it's, it's like you say, the chance that there's a nuclear risk. I mean, Fukushima wasn't a nuclear risk. That was a environmental tidal wave risk that people had not contemplated properly. Yeah, that's correct. And, and I don't think it's the yeah. people there. The, the people there aren't making that assessment. They're, they're having the hell scared out of them by the ENGOs. I mean, um, NRDC raises a ton of money on Pebble. They don't, NRDC doesn't ever do any scientific studies. The only thing NRDC does, and they tell me this, we're an advocacy group. We're not science-based. You know, we advocate, and the guy said to me, he said, we will never, ever approve Pebble, no matter what you do. We, we do not <laughs> believe that there's any mines that should be built in North America. Because I said, well, you know, give me an example of a mine that you think is responsibly operated that you'd be prepared to say, because, you know, you drive a Tesla, I said to the guy. I mean, you, you have a computer, you've got a cell phone, you, you rely on metals. He said, it's not my job to assess what is a good mine. And my job is to make sure that no mines are ever built in America. Ron, well, let's hold up there for this segment and uh, we'll come back here with the next segment and pick up where we left off. Andrew, just uh, uh, some closing comments here, winding up the, uh, the project that we've been talking about mainly here and the project that we took into permitting is the, is the 20 year mine life. And the, and the purpose of that was to try and create something that people could get comfortable with. We could obtain, if you will, our, our social license. Uh, we weren't going to use cyanide in it. Uh, it was going to have the smallest footprint possible, um, you know, 5.8 square miles as opposed to the five square miles that the Obama administration even said that they would consider permitting. Um, and, and so that's why we took that particular project into permitting. I mean, we've been talking a lot about, about the alternatives to Pebble because it has so much optionality. Things like the gold plant uh, using alternative lexivians, uh, an extended mine life, take it beyond 20 years because we know the resources are there. Expand the processing plant because once again, we know that the resources are there. And even the uh, large scale underground mining concept, bulk underground mining, again, uh, that would enhance grade and, and mine life. I want to remind you know your listeners and yourself that those alternatives, which have been part of our studies all along and will continue to be studied and probably looked at opportunistically at the relevant time in the future would require a separate round of permitting as and when it was decided to try and bring those things on. Okay. 
Thanks.